Here it is. From deep inside your audio device of choice. Hey, got bees? Well, treasure them, cherish them, protect them, because they're going away, and with them are food. Pollinators are under threat, and that means that one in three bites of food that we eat is at risk. Additionally, this threat places the almost 90% of flowering plants needing pollination across the world on shaky ground. I think that's bad ground potentially endangering the wildlife that depend on them for food. It's just the planet. According to a report sponsored by the United Nations that draws on the research findings of about 3,000 scientific papers, that's junk science. 40% of invertebrate pollinator species, such as bees and butterflies, not birds and bats. What are you thinking with the birds and the bats? Excuse me, non Vertebrate, invertebrate, bees and butterflies are facing extinction. In addition, 16% of your bats and birds are also threatened with extinction. So the invertebrates are not alone. They've got company, which is always good. Scott Black, the executive director of the Xerces Society for Invertebrate Conservation, acted as a peer reviewer for the report, which was announced this week by the Intergovernmental Science Policy Platform on Biodiversity and Ecosystem Services. You don't even want to hear the acronym for that organization. Black says the study is the most thorough of the kind he's ever seen. He sounds the alarm for government, or he says it sounds the, the alarm for governments around the world to take action for the sake of agriculture and keystone animal species that rely on pollinated plants. And you know they're going to do that because otherwise they'll get Monsanto ticked off. Quote, 40% is a large amount, and that should concern us all because agriculture depends on pollinators, but not only because of that. He says, without pollinators, we'd have wheat, rice, and corn. Mm-mm. But we wouldn't have our most nutritious foods. We wouldn't have apples and other fruits or a lot of vegetables. You know, wheat, rice, and corn? No. In the wild, everything from songbirds to grizzly bears depend on pollinated plants. Well, we shoot grizzly bears, don't we? The I, the organization with the unpronounceable and virtually indistinguishable acronym was established in 2012. It's roughly modeled, I love rough models, on the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. The body has 124 member governments. Its pollinator assessment went through two rounds of peer review. So it's got to be good. According to the report, the volume of agricultural production dependent on animal pollination has increased by 300% during the past 50 years. Globally, pollinator-dependent agriculture is an industry worth up to $577 billion annually. However, pollinator-dependent crops show lower growth and stability in yield than crops that don't depend on pollinators. Bees aren't working hard enough. I say incentives. Wild pollinators in certain regions, especially bees and butterflies, are being threatened by a variety of factors, says the vice chair, Sir Robert Watson. Their decline is primarily due to changes in land use, intensive agricultural practices, pesticide use, alien invasive species, diseases and pests, and climate change. Aside from that, Mrs. Lincoln, they're doing fine. The global spread of the virus that deforms the wings of honeybees and kills them in droves. 
Worst place to be killed. You don't want to be die in a drove. It was caused by humans, according to new research. According to the study published in Science Magazine, the problem dates back to the mid-20th century when Asian honeybees traded widely in the former Soviet Union were introduced to Europe and paired with European honeybees. For centuries, Asian honeybees had learned to fend off a mite that used them as a host while feeding on their blood. But European honeybees did not recognize them as a pest. The mite compounded a problem that some European honeybee colonies had learned to live with for centuries, a a virus that deformed their wings, now known as DMV. I've been in those offices. Before the introduction of the mite, the virus existed on the body surface of the European honeybees, but the biting mite picked up the virus and injected it into the bee's bloodstream, making the problem far worse, according to a lecturer at the University of Exeter in England and the lead author of the study. When European honeybees were introduced to the Americas and other parts of Asia in subsequent years, a localized endemic in Europe evolved into a global pandemic that led to bee colony collapse disorder and is threatening agriculture that relies on pollinating honeybees to grow food crops. Making matters worse? Oh, it's not bad enough already. Okay, then. Honeybees are spreading the virus through their saliva. Honeybees have saliva. I'm going to just stop with that one. And feces to plants used by other pollinators, such as bumblebees and other solitary bees. DWV. Oh, it's DWV. Sorry. It's a DMV the first time through. Has been detected in various insect groups that play dramatically different ecological roles, including insect predators and scavengers, pollinators, and pest species that live inside the colony, according to the science article that announced the study. We really see this as a multi-host problem, said the researcher. It's really up to the beekeepers. When they keep their bees healthy, they also keep the wild pollinators healthy. But, you know, if the bees don't want to do the yoga, there's nothing I can... Ladies and gentlemen, our freedom-loving friends in Saudi Arabia, a court in Saudi Arabia has sentenced a man to 10 years in prison. That ain't nothing. And 2,000 lashes. These wouldn't be eyelashes. For expressing his atheism in social media tweets, hundreds of them, but still, the 28-year-old man admitted to being an atheist and refused to repent, saying what he wrote reflected his own beliefs and that he had the right to, res- to express them. The report did not name the man, because I guess he didn't have the right to be named. It added that religious police in charge of monitoring social networks found more than 600 tweets denying the existence of God ridiculing the Quranic verses, accusing all prophets of lies and saying their teaching fueled hostilities. The court also fined him about $6,000 just in case the uh, lashes weren't enough or the 10 years in prison. In uh, 2014, the oil-rich kingdom, of course the oil riches don't mean that much anymore since the price of oil has plummeted. The country is undergoing what you might call Greek-style austerity at this point. But in 2014, when they were still rich, they introduced a series of new laws which defined atheists as terrorists. Well, that couldn't happen anywhere else. In a string of royal decrees and an overarching new piece of legislation to deal with terrorism generally, King Abdullah attempted to clamp down on all forms of political dissent, 
and protests that could, quote, harm public order. Article 1 of the new provisions defined terrorism as, quote, calling for atheist thought in any form or calling into question the fundamentals of the Islamic religion on which this country is based, unquote. Our freedom-loving friends, ladies and gentlemen, in Saudi Arabia, 2,000 lashes. I don't even think Maybelline has that many. Hello, welcome to the show. I'm Harry Shearer, welcoming you to this edition of the show. And now, ladies and gentlemen, news of the Olympic movement. Produced by Jim Eversall Jr. Pregnant women should consider not traveling to the 2016 Olympic Games in Brazil due to the risk of Zika virus infection, according to the U.S. Centers of Disease Control and Prevention. CDC also said women considering becoming pregnant and their male partners should exercise caution if they travel to the Olympics or Paralympic Games. CDC recommends that pregnant women consider not traveling to the Olympics. The advisory says if you have a male partner who goes to the Olympics, you may be at risk for sexual transmission. 
CDC's statement is the agency's first explicit warning for some travelers to stay away from the games in Rio, which has been expecting to draw as many as 400,000 tourists from around the world. Brazilian authorities have been drawing up robust mosquito control plans to minimize the risks to spectators and tourists alike. That's according to Reuters. How robust? This robust. Even as athletes grow increasingly concerned about the outbreak of the Zika virus, the organizing committee for the Olympics in Rio says that will charge national teams to have mosquito screens on athletes' rooms' windows. This also, according to Rogers. The right hand and the left hand, ladies and gentlemen, they're in competition. The screens, one measure Brazilians are using to help ward off the mosquito that is the primary vector of Zika, will be installed in communal areas where required, but only affixed to lodging if national delegations decide to pay for it. That's according to Philip Wilkinson, spokesman for the Rio 2016 Organizing Committee, who, strangely enough, doesn't sound Brazilian. Philip Wilkinson. Hey, Phil. The committee did not say how much the screens would cost or what type they would use. Low-end screens attached to windows with Velcro can cost as little as $15. More rigid and durable screens can cost over $100. Any bets? Place your bets now, because there's no betting at the Olympics. And a human arm has been photographed floating in the waters of Rio's Olympic sailing venue. Photos of the arm were sent to Brazilian website Globo.com. Environmental issues continue to be highlighted in the lead-up to the Games. The polluted waters in Guanabara Bay have drawn the most criticism, with athletes falling ill during Olympic test events. The reader sent in the photograph said it wasn't the first time he'd seen human remains in the water. Quote, I've seen bodies floating at other times, five years ago and another last year. He wanted to remain anonymous, of course, lest he become one of them. Quote, it is absurd, but we've got used to see things floating in the bay. I've seen a lot of garbage, other objects, and dead dogs, unquote, he said. Biologist Mario Moscatelli, whose work has been specializing in the ecosystems of Rio for over 25 years, said it's not unusual to see dead bodies floating in Guanabara Bay. Quote, I've seen whole bodies and have seen them in pieces, unquote, is what he said. Though he added that he'd re- that had reduced after increased police action in the crime-riddled city. I clearly remember it was common to find bodies in Guanabara Bay, unquote. But you know what? That arm was in great shape. The Olympics! It's a movement, and we need one every day! Ladies and gentlemen, you know about the lead in the water in Flint, Michigan. You know about the lead in the air at the battery recycling plant in Los Angeles, if you heard about it last week on this program. Now it's becoming clear to the city of Jackson in Mississippi and the state health department that the water system issues that have contributed to high levels of lead there at residence taps will not have a quick fix. For this reason, the health department released a statement this week urging pregnant women and children who are at greater risk from lead exposure to take extra precautions when consuming Jackson's water. What would those precautions be? Don't watch the Olympics while you're drinking it. 
Oh, no, sorry. They include running the water before using and avoiding hot water while cooking. <laughs> Quote, we realize that the city of Jackson cannot come into compliance quickly. So while they're dealing with these alkalinity and these pH levels that lead to corrosivity, we just want to recommend this, says the spokesperson for the Mississippi State Department of Health. Corrosion can cause lead pipes and plumbing to leach particles of lead into the water. The more corrosive the water is, based on fluctuating pH and alkalinity levels, the more likely it is that lead will be present in the water. The Jackson Public Works director, Keisha Powell, addressed the heightened sensitivity of the community to issues regarding lead in the drinking water. We understood the concern because there are some similarities to Flint. Nobody wants to say Flint, but I'm going to say that because there are some similarities, Powell said. The way that we dealt with it is very different. That's not similar at all. The, similar, the similarities are that they did change their water system. They changed to a very corrosive water system, and they had no corrosion control. In the city of Jackson, she said, we have corrosion control, unquote. So, ladies and gentlemen, next time you drink tap water, just remember, you're drinking corrosion control. Gotta be good for you. And now, news of the warm, won't you? Award-winning feature of this broadcast. Imagine that. Soft listen to the warm. We can listen to the warm. Well, ladies and gentlemen, if you like ice ages, and who doesn't, you're going to have to wait longer for the next one. Mankind is pumping so much carbon dioxide into the atmosphere that it could postpone the next ice age by more than 100,000 years. This according to new research, which find humans are having a mind-boggling impact on the Earth. A report from the independent newspaper in Britain, which is about to not be a newspaper anymore. The volume of CO2 emissions that is accumulated in the atmosphere is so great that it has fundamentally changed the relationship between people and the planet as human behavior radically alters the way the system operates. According to the research, the study found that the next ice age would be pushed back by almost 50,000 years, even if emissions stopped overnight. That's maybe not going to happen. And if the volume of greenhouse gases forecast to be produced in the coming decades comes to pass, it could, but the, it could that is, the next ice age, be postponed by more than 100,000 years. So I would say make your ice cubes the old-fashioned way with a refrigerator. The impact of greenhouse gases is so profound and long-lasting because they can linger in the atmosphere for centuries. During this time, they can upset the evolution of the ice sheets of the northern hemisphere, which built up gradually over a period of 90,000 years through a complex, highly uneven feedback mechanism of cooling temperatures, increasing snowfall, rising levels of reflected sunlight, and falling temperatures. Quote, it's mind-boggling that humankind is able to interfere with a mechanism that shaped the world as we know it, says the lead author of the study. But he continues, our study shows that CO2 emissions from burning oil, coal, and gas are already sufficient to postpone the next ice age for another 50,000 years, unquote. And unless drastic action is taken to swiftly cut emissions, the next ice age could be pushed back considerably further than that. The research was published in the journal Nature, which I guess is not a fan of new ice ages. News of the warm? Yes, 
copyrighted feature this broadcast. And now, let us try. You know, that's the motto of the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. They said this week, test results of samples taken from the bottom of the Cuyahoga River shipping channel in Buffalo, New York, were clean enough to allow them to dump dredged sediment from the river into Lake Erie. That's been a point of contention for more than a year with the Port of Cleveland. Hello, Cleveland, as well as the Ohio Environmental Protection Agency. A lawsuit is pending in U.S. District Court over the issue. Public hearing is planned for this week. So uh, book your flight now. The Army Corps scientists found the levels of PCBs in the upper Cuyahoga River Channel were consistent with the levels of PCBs in Lake Erie and the levels of polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons in the river were not toxic. toxic. PAHs are the stuff that um, gets into the air off of gasoline and other petroleum products, include benzene and toluene, and they're toxic, all right. Quote, hence moving sediment from the river channel to an open lake placement site would not result in lowering Lake Erie's water quality, according to the Corps of Engineers spokesperson. The Port of Cleveland president, Will Friedman, released a written response criticizing the Army Corps' misguided campaign. He opposes the Army Corps of Engineers, ladies and gentlemen. Think of that. He uh, challenged the validity of the Army Corps' conclusions that the dredged sediment is clear and clean and safe for open, open lake dumping. Recent testing indicates persistent and, in some cases, elevated levels of these toxins in the sediments, including PCBs and other harmful compounds, prompting Ohio EPA to disqualify these sediments for open lake dumping. Unquote. For decades, Friedman from the uh, Cleveland port said, polluted settlement dredged biannually from the river has been stored in confined disposal dikes along the Lake Erie shoreline to minimize exposure to the aquatic food chain, including fish and the source of public drinking water. But the... Uh, Spokesperson for the EPA challenge, uh, sorry, spokesperson for the Corps challenged the EPA's findings that the sediment was toxic. He called the EPA's laboratory tests scientifically unreliable. Ohio EPA's improper testing methods resulted in improbably high levels of PCB bioaccumulation, said the Corps spokesperson. Decisions based on these flawed results would greatly overestimate the risk these chemicals pose to human health and the environment. The port says it's going to consider going to federal court if the Army Corps insists on moving ahead with its plan for open lake disposal. The EPA fears that adding even a minimal amount of PCBs into Lake Erie could have a major impact on walleye. That's a fish pushing limits from one meal per week to one meal per month. That would be how much you can eat walleye, not how much they can eat. Just to clarify, walleye can do whatever they want. They're free. Let us try, ladies and gentlemen. The motto of the United States Army Corps of Engineers. And now, news of the godly. Well, it, it, it just, it's all over the place, isn't it? The Roman Catholic Church in southern India 
has made a decision to lift the suspension of a former Minnesota priest accused of sexual abuse, Father Joseph Palanivel Jayapal. He's 61 years old. He was originally suspended in 2010 after being charged with assaulting two girls, both 14 at the time of the alleged abuse. So he's consistent. Jayapal fled the United States, arrested in India by Interpol in 2012, extradited to the United States, where he pled guilty and was convicted of fourth degree. I didn't know they had four degrees. Fourth degree criminal sexual conduct involving a Minnesota teenage girl sentenced to one year in jail. He's now back in his native country of India. And he could be allowed to work in the church again following the lifted suspension. The former Clay County prosecutor, Heidi Davies, said she was shocked that the Catholic Church had not even contacted law enforcement to learn anything about him or his case. Minneapolis child victim advocate mentioned the promise made by Pope Francis to tackle the problem of sexual abuse by priests seems to have been violated. Father Jayapal was charged with the second criminal sexual conduct case in Greenbush, but the case, that's in Minnesota, but the case was dropped due to lack of evidence. Investigators say it's very doubtful that these are the only incidents in Jayapal's past. But hey, it's India. You know what I'm saying? News of the godly. They got other gods. Well, there's more news of the godly. The Catholic Church in Oaxaca, Mexico, has been accused of covering up sexual crimes by one of its priests and punishing others who raised the accusations. One of the latter admitted that he, along with the majority of priests in Oaxaca, has a family. Apolonio Merino Hernandez made the admission after a press conference held by the Oaxaca Children's Forum and various priests and activists, where the Archbishop of Oaxaca was accused of covering up sexual abuse by Gerardo Silvestre Hernandez. Hernandez. The conference was told that Marino was transferred to a distant and remote parish as punishment for speaking out against Silvestre and on behalf of victims. Last August, he was suspended... I guess that's a very painful process in the church. As many as 100 indigenous youngsters are believed to have been abused by Silvestre beginning in 2006. That's not that long ago. That's when everybody else was discovering abuse. Well, so was he. The priest was on a six-month internship in San Pablo Huitzo, where he abused a nine-year-old boy, the conference was told, after which there were, quote, more than 100 victims in seven different parishes where Silvestre served. Spreading it around, you know. Although the church has reportedly exonerated him, the state has not. He was jailed in 2013 after the state attorney general accused him of corrupting minors in connection with the abuse of two boys in another indigenous community. He remains in jail awaiting trial. Speakers said church authorities in Oaxaca refused to meet with any of the victims, despite the efforts of Marino. Marino is the priest uh, to have them do so. They accused Archbishop Jose Luis Chavez Botello, too many names, of protecting Silvestre and covering up the case by not submitting all the evidence to the Vatican. In a radio interview, Marino admitted he had had a relationship with a woman and had fathered children with her. He estimated that 70% of the 124 priests who work in Oaxaca's 112 parishes have families, contrary 
to the church's dictate regarding celibacy, you see. That is News of the Godly, copyrighted feature of this broadcast. And you know that Hillary Clinton handily defeated Bernie Sanders in the South Carolina Democratic primary election Saturday. The Republican primary goes on. Everybody convenes for Super Tuesday, which is a series of primaries in a bunch of states. It's called Super because a lot of delegates at stake. And uh, Marco Rubio has suddenly gotten in touch with his inner investigative journalist, or, or at least the investigative journalist's reports have bubbled up to Marco Rubio in the in the last Republican debate before the Super Tuesday election day this Tuesday. He uh, vociferously attacked Donald Trump on many of the issues that have been raised by journalists about Trump's past over the last little while, not notably, not including Trump's involvement in the course of building, among other buildings, Trump Tower in New York City, his involvement with labor unions, which are notoriously infested with nice people doing nice things. But one of the things Marco Rubio brought up in the uh, debate and then later on on the campaign trail was a little thing called Trump University. Now, Trump Stakes, I don't know if you know about Trump Stakes, he pitched this line of beef. Yes, no, really. No, really. Um, Stakes, best in the world, you know, because they bear his name. They were sold only at sharper image stores. These were stores that uh, in the late 90s and early part of this century featured kind of up-to-date electronic gimmicks and Trump stakes. They're, they're, uh, the stores are gone now, probably because of the electronic gimmicks. The stakes were the best in the world, of course. But now uh, what Rubio was concentrating on was Trump University. This was a series of seminars in hotel ballrooms where people were, well, according to the New York Attorney General Eric Schneiderman in a $40 million lawsuit, he claims the school operated without a license, kept its name for years despite warnings over the last 10 years from the New York State Education Department that it was against the law to refer to the program as a university since it was not chartered as such. The program returned to staff mem- referred to staff members as faculty, participants as students, and then graduates, the coursework as a curriculum, and payments as tuition. Some instructors said it was a bit of a college degree, and that the program offered graduate, postgraduate, and doctorate programs. Trump University materials often bore a university-like seal. The, the claim by the Attorney General of the State of New York also says the program never even applied to be licensed as an educational institution by the State of New York. A couple of years ago, The Atlantic uncovered a training manual from Trump University, a 41-page private and confidential playbook, 
printed on Trump University letterhead. Trump proclaimed in the advertising for Trump University, in just 90 minutes, my hand-picked instructors will share my techniques, which took my entire career to develop, then just copy exactly what I've done and get rich, unquote. But these seminars served, well, to enroll the enrollees or the attendees in expensive Trump University training programs, retreats, and coaching sessions. Coaching sessions, I say. The playbook makes Trump's school seem like not so much a school of higher learning as a meticulously choreographed sales event. Trump University had the playbook prepared for seminars in Texas in 2009. As the playbook puts the mandate on page 23, quote, sell, sell, sell. The playbook posits a minimum sales goal of $72,500 per seminar, meaning the seminar leaders had need, had to convince at least 20% of attendees to sign up for three-day seminars, costing $1,500. Trump U staffers are instructed to welcome attendees and built a Trump-esque atmosphere, disarm any certainty, and set the hook. Unquote. The hook in this case consisted of selling seminar attendees on increasingly costly additional courses, culminating in the Trump Gold Elite package for $35,000. The playbook says the list price of that package is $49,000. The savings to students of 29%, if anybody paid list price. Chairs should be close enough, according to the playbook, to give attendees sufficient space while still bringing attendees out of their comfort zone. Room temperature should be set at no more than 68 degrees. A sales area was to be set up within close proximity to the exit so that attendees need to walk past sales tables in order to get out. As soon as the attendees entered, the song For the Love of Money by the OJs greeted them. That was the theme for Trump's reality television series, series is, is, is The Apprentice and Celebrity Apprentice. Once Trump used staffers had seminar attendees grooving, they herded would-be students over to registration tables. For attendees who balked at filling out a card, the playbook offered this handy sample dialogue. Attendee, do I really have to fill out this registration card? I've been writing all day. Team member, well, this is really a confirmation card so that we confirm all of your information is up to date. I think we just might have something to help you out of that nine-to-five of yours, unquote. Upon registration, each attendee was issued a name tag hand-printed by a Trump representative. The playbook advises staffers clarify spelling preferences, details count, unquote. Unfortunately, Donald Trump didn't note that in his tweet yesterday where he referred to the Grand Marshal of a parade with two L's himself as the Grand Marshal in an Israeli Day parade in 2005, even though the sash he wore spelled Grand Marshal with one L. If a member of the media happened to approach the registration table, Trump staffers were instructed not to talk to him or her under any circumstance. Once seminar attendees were comfortably but not too comfortably seated, the lights dimmed and an introductory video featuring Donald Trump himself began the video marked the closest any Trump University student would get to Donald Trump. None of the school's courses, including those in the pricey gold elite level, featured an appearance from the flesh-and-blood entrepreneur. 
That didn't stop instructors from hinting that Trump might drop by one of the school's seminars. Trump classes often began with the promise that Trump is going to be in the town, often drops by or might show up. However, he never materialized as consolation attendees sometimes were offered the opportunity to have their photo taken next to a life-size cardboard cutout of Donald Trump. State of New York's complaint asserts Trump had no role in selecting teachers, despite the claim that they were handpicked by him. Quote, many instructors came to Trump University from jobs having little to do with real estate investments. The complaint reads, some came shortly after their real estate investing caused them to go into bankruptcy, unquote. The playbook spells out the one essential qualification in all capital letters, quote, all payments must be received in full. The playbook instructs sales coordinator number one at the table that everybody has to pass by to get out to, quote, close sales at sales table and facilitate enrollment armed with objection rebuttals. Sales coordinator number two, quote, floats and closes more sales, getting additional attendees seated at back sales table armed with objection rebuttals. The program coordinator works the room with special attention to team members in in possession of credit cards that need to be run, unquote. Anyone with a valid credit card was admitted to Trump University. The school used the name Trump University, according to New York State's investigation, even though it lacked the charter necessary under state law to call itself a university. It was only under pressure from the attorney general that Trump University ultimately changed its name to the Trump Entrepreneur Initiative. It faces two multi-million dollar fraud lawsuits. Trump himself continues to defend his educational efforts, calling Trump University, quote, a terrific school that did a fantastic job. At one point, the playbook advises Trump staffers, quote, if a district attorney arrives on the scene, contact the appropriate media spokesperson immediately, unquote. Well, they didn't have a charter, and they didn't have a curriculum, and they didn't have a degree, but they did have an alma mater. Win.
and small things Lying and stealing and letting the chips just fall Signing and sealing and knowing the price of all things And the value of nothing at all Sure It's little wonder We're insecure Just open up your eyes like the sweepstakes without the prize but the wheelers and dealers are doing their thing and telling us everything's rosy lord only knows what tomorrow may bring but don't anybody get nosy wheeling and dealing in various large and small things lying and stealing and letting the chips just fall signing and sealing and knowing the price of of nothing at all. gentlemen, I, I mentioned to you moments ago the Republican debate last Thursday. The headlines involved Marco Rubio going after Donald Trump and Trump rebutting in in the way only he can. But um, 
a subsidiary storyline was Ben Carson, the former neurosurgeon who um, was a rising star in the early fall of last year. He, w- he was uh, this year's Herman Cain, um, a rising star who has then uh, succumbed to the law of gravity since then. But he did say one thing that was um, that, that, that piqued my interest. He was, among other candidates, asked what would be his set of criteria for choosing a nominee to the Supreme Court to succeed the late Justice Scalia. As president, I would go through and I would look at what a person's life has been. What have they done in the past? What kind of judgments have they made? What kind of associations do they have? That will tell you a lot more than an interview will tell you. The fruit salad of their life is what I will look at. Like uh, a lot of other people, that last line struck me as one of two things, either borderline incoherent or borderline poetic. The neatly cubed cantaloupe were the dreams of youth deferred. The golden delicious apple slices, the disasters that never occurred. The sections of Satsuma, my anger yet untamed. The chunks of ripe banana, my nightmares still inflamed. The tapestry of experience painted with a knife. The fruit salad of my life. Here's the ripe avocado, halved and cut in chunks. It's the time I spent in poverty, sleeping in upper bunks. Now the grapefruit segments, rinsed and patted dry. The days I wandered aimlessly only asking why. Here's the fresh pineapple, finely peeled and cored. The days I spent in college, unwilling to be ignored. The teaspoons full of fresh ginger, so very finely grated the joy tattooed on my mother's face the day I graduated. The bitterness of the lemon juice, the years of work and strife, the fruit salad of my life. The cups of peeled large mangoes, the roads I never traveled, the stacks of grilled peach rounds, the plans that just unraveled, the quart of strawberries sliced in half, 
the struggle to survive. The cups of seedless green grapes. I see my dreams revive. The tapestry of experience gently painted with a knife. The fruit salad of my life. As I sit down at the table and as I gaze into the bowl, I see the parts I played in life growing into every role. The sweetness and the acidity, an endless combination. My biography is a recipe. It serves the entire nation. The kiwi fruit, so thinly sliced, of course that would be my wife. The fruit salad of my life. And now, ladies and gentlemen, the apologies of the week. We're so sorry. Ross Douthat is a New York Times columnist. He tweeted a joke about assassinating Donald Trump and then deleted the message and apologized. He tweeted Wednesday night, Good news, guys. I figured out how the Trump campaign ends along with a clip from a little um, movie, The Dead Zone. Trump advisor Roger Stone revealed last week, Trump wears a bulletproof vest at public events, so that's not going to happen. But from uh, Douthat's tweet, a lot of readers were offended by my Trump dead zone joke from yesterday. I can see why, and I've deleted the tweet. Apologies, unquote. Or he detweeted the elite. Al Jazeera America has apologized for a story posted to the network's website that joked about the network's own demise. We believe the story was not appropriate given AJAM's imminent closure, the network said in a statement. The satirical story was supposedly a roundup of the six hot media startups to watch in 2016, described Al Jazeera in America as the top one to watch. The story described the network's strategy as trying to tempt Fox News's 60-something-year-old viewers over to the AJAM camp. AJAM pulled the piece from its website and replaced it with an editor's note. Al Jazeera America has removed the satirical piece originally posted on this link. The commentary our company believes was not appropriate given its imminent closure. Our goal in the closing stages of AJM is to honor the exceptional journalism and journalists that distinguished our brand. We believe this satirical piece originally at this link failed to live up to these goals. We offer our apologies to our readers and to the staff and to the Emir of Kuwait. Clothing retailer Land's End is in hot water after it published an interview with political activist Gloria Steinem in its spring catalog, prompting outrage from some customers. Steinem, as you know, a feminist icon, was interviewed by the CEO of Land's End for the company's Legend series, which it says features people who have made a difference in both their respective industries and the world at large. The interview was removed from the Land's End website after customers overwhelmed the company's Facebook page with complaints about interviewing an abortion's right, an abortion rights supporter. 
Land's End, in an email statement, said, quote, We greatly respect and appreciate the passion people have for our brand. It was never our intention to raise a divisive political or religious issue. So when some of our customers saw a recent promotion that that way, we heard them. We sincerely apologize for any offense. Now you know who wears Land's End. Gay rights activists who were beaten during Sydney, Australia's inaugural Mardi Gras 1978 have received a formal apology in the New South Wales Parliament. Cheers rang out of the Parliament following the apology. The march, born out of solidarity for New York's Stonewall movement, called for sodomy laws to be abolished and for an end to discrimination. It was met with unexpected police violence, mass arrests, and public shaming. The Fairfax Media Group, main opponent main competition for the Rupert Murdoch-owned media in Australia, has apologized for outing 53 people involved by publishing their names, addresses, and occupations. It's unclear whether the New South Wales Police Force will issue a separate apology. A Victorian Catholic bishop who moved pedophile priests among parishes to avoid scandalizing the church, this is also in Australia, denies trying to cover up widespread child sex abuse. But retired Bishop Ronald Mulkerns says he's sorry and regrets not doing his job very well in handling pedophilia in his diocese of Ballarat. Bishop Mulkerns knew about pedophile priests whom he sent for treatment and moved among parishes. The Royal Commission has heard. The bishop admitted he wanted to protect the reputation of the church during his time in office, 1971 to 1997, but told the inquiry he was trying to stop further offending. Speaking of which, Tony Hall, director general of the BBC, formally apologized to victims of sexual abuse at the hands of the late BBC personality Jimmy Savile following the release this week of a blistering report on decades of assaults by Savile, who hosted the teen-oriented music show Top of the Pops and also a uh, a children's show where he dealt with children's requests called Jim Will Fix It, whose producer said he hated children. Quote, the BBC failed you when it should have protected you, Hall said a serial rapist and a predatory sexual abuser both hid in plain sight of the BBC for decades. What this terrible episode teaches us that is, is that fame is power a very strong form of power, and like any form of power, it must be held to account, and it wasn't, unquote. The report found that the culture of fear that allowed Savile's acts to continue still exists to some degree at the BBC. Well, that's good news for pedophiles, isn't it? New York City's top police watchdog, it's a, actually a person, has apologized for saying that police union leaders calling for his ouster were, quote, squealing like a stuck pig. Pig has long been a derisive term for police officers. Police union leaders have seized on the remark made in an interview with the tabloid The Daily News as evidence that the chairman is biased against police officers. The apology from Richard Emery, chairman of the Civilian Complaint Review Board, came this week. He and union leaders have been fighting over the fact that the law firm he founded represents people suing the city and bringing cases before the board. In a statement Thursday afternoon, Emery said, I have never and never would use the word pig to refer to police officers. I have the utmost respect for policing as a civic function and police officers as people and public servants who selflessly serve all of us. To the extent that anyone was offended by my poor choice of words, I apologize. I want to make clear that nothing I said was directed at our superb public servants. Please don't shoot me. No, he didn't say that. 
WLS Channel 7 in Chicago has apologized to its viewers for mistakenly using the logo of McDonald's restaurants to illustrate a story about the Chicago police shooting of a teen Laquan McDonald. Natural mistake. Vincente Fox, the former president of Mexico, said, I'm not going to pay for that effing wall on Fox Business News. And he said it live on the air with the F word. And Maria Bartiromo, Bartiromo, the money honey host of the show, that was what she was called at CNBC, don't blame me, apologized for the profanity. Baltimore's police commissioner, Kevin Davis, apologized to police union leaders and officers after blaming an unnamed veteran officer for sparking part of last April's unrest. And Jeremy Clarkson, the former host of hit BBC auto show Top Gear, apologized and paid an undisclosed sum to a producer whom he punched in an altercation on the set of the show. The apologies of the week, ladies and gentlemen, a copyrighted feature of this broadcast. Well, ladies and gentlemen, the huge methane leak on the northeast side of Los Angeles and San Fernando Valley. Turns out, according to reports issued this week, to have been kind of a big thing, doubling the amount of methane emissions generated by the Los Angeles metropolitan area in a year, so sort of retarding California's attempt to uh, rein in greenhouse gas emissions. But, you know... It's your gas company in action. Ladies and gentlemen, that concludes this week's edition of the show. The program returns next week at the same time over these same stations over NPR worldwide throughout Europe, the USN 440 cable system in Japan, around the world through the facilities of the American Forces Network up and down the East Coast of North America via the shortwave giant WBCQ The Planet, 7.490 megahertz shortwave on the Mighty 104 in Berlin, on Soho Radio in London, Around the world via the Internet at two different locations, harryshearer.com, sometimes, and kcsn.org. Available for your smartphone through stitcher.com and available as a free podcast from wwno.org, SoundCloud, Sideshow Network, iTunes, and tunein.com. And it'd be just like not moving priests around when they molest children. If you'd agree to join with me then, would you already? Thank you very much. Uh-huh. A tip of the show, Jack Poe, to the San Diego, Pittsburgh, Chicago, and Exile, and Hawaii. Thanks as always to Pam Halstead and Jenny Lawson at WWNO New Orleans. The email address for this program, Cars That Talk t-shirts at harryshare.com. The show comes to you from Century of Progress Productions, originates through the facilities of WWNO New Orleans, flagship station for the Change is Easy radio network. So long from the home of the homeless.